Hello and welcome to Off the Roll. I'm your host, Trey Hirschman. We have Glenn Snow back on the podcast and he's going to talk to us about the development and the growing of physical therapy services, which is one of the first sports medicine physical therapy franchise clinics in the United States. Glenn has some great stories uh, regarding how he got brought on to physical therapy services and of course Dick Hoover who started the whole process for the company. So let's go off the roll with Glenn Snow. Started here. Welcome to Off the Roll. I'm your host Troy Hirschman. Um, today we're talking again with uh, Glenn Snow. Glenn Snow is a um, uh, Cardinal Sports Medicine Ring of Honor member, um, Ball State athlete training alum, uh, currently working for DigiJump. Um, soon, soon to new, new and improved DigiJump, right? That'll be coming out soon. Yep. Yeah. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Um, but we're going to kind of take off uh, from where uh, we left off with Glenn, and Glenn was one of the first podcasts that we did. So we're going to take off with his time with Dick Hoover and uh, and have him tell some stories about his time with Dick. So Glenn, welcome to the podcast again. Thanks, uh, Troy. This is a, a quieter version of this, and <laughs> yeah. I, I am uh, uh, pleased to host you here in my basement, and it is much quieter. Um, I don't, you know, we talked about uh, Hoove and a lot of the things that went on. Uh, I mean, I could spend hours telling stories and talking about my time with, with Dick. But I think one of the f- most fun things is, is how it got all got started. I was fortunate enough to always be invited when he was at Northwestern to be a part of any special events. NCAA, college football, all-stars, all that type of stuff. So I got to know him fairly well as a student. So when it came to uh, him looking for another person he felt like he could work with in the physical therapy business, he came visiting. And I was out on the, I think on the football field, and one of my student trainers comes running in to me and says, Glenn, there is... uh, some guy with cowboy boots on, a 10-gallon hat, uh, sitting at your desk with his feet propped up. He just came in and said, now, this is my desk. You go tell him, get in here. So I go, okay. And I, as I walk by, I realize it was who's uh, BMW. He always had a BMW or a Mercedes that he traveled in because he would never fly. He had anxiety and he just couldn't fly. So he yeah. drove everywhere. So I walk into my training room and I sat down. He goes, hey. Uh, I'm going to offer you a job and I want you to take it. And I said, well, first of all, I've got a job. Secondly, I don't know that I want to live in Chicago. And thirdly, I, you know, I, I question that I can do the job for you. I mean, I don't have any business experience. Well, he, so, he chose to say a few choice words to me. <laughs> so I had to ask my student trainers to leave. And uh, we sat down and talked. And I said, I don't, I just don't know. He says, I want you to come up and uh talk to me so we this was this was uh i think it was football season that we were in and it wasn't until i i delayed that until in the basketball season to go up well i didn't know we were going to win the regional and we ended up in Terre Haute at a uh a semi-state and he says well you got to come up i want you up here now 
So he flew me from Louisville to Chicago and gave me a tour of the facility, told me what he wanted me to do, that he would train me, he would do all these things. And then uh, he says, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a car and I'm going to double your salary. Oh my goodness. And I'm going, what? He says, yeah, I'm going to give you a car because I see that piece of junk you're driving and uh, you're going to get a new car and I will take care of your salary and all your benefits. Uh, you got to start at the beginning of the summer. I said, well, I got a couple things I have to do. Uh, I had to go to the NATA meeting, which I would always go into anyhow, whether right. I worked with him or not. And then JD and I had Manchester camp that we always did. So I told him I had to get those things done. He said, I don't care. As long as you uh, get, get working, I'll be happy. So I said, can you give me uh, a day to think about it? He says, no. He said, you take it now or forever hold your peace. You know? And I said, okay, I, I'll take it. I'll take it. So he flew me back to Terre Haute on uh, Friday night late. And I got in. I had no luggage. Oh, my goodness. None. <laughs> and on Saturday, I went to the first semi-state game in the same clothes I had worn the day before. <laughs> for the interview. For, for the interview. Yeah. And I was pretty stinky. So everybody thought that was funny, and the press found out about it. So they made a big issue out of it. And uh, another storyline. So finally that afternoon, uh, I got my stuff and I was able to change clothes. And then we ended up getting beat uh, by three points for that game. And then I came home. Then I had to, to break the news to the coaching staff and all those people that I was going to leave. So I, took a, I just took a leave of absence yeah, just to make sure that this was going to fit. And then I went to work for Hoover. Hoover was not a great one on uh, let's have formal training. <laughs> he says, this way, I'm going to show you how to do it. Then turn me loose. He says, I'll give you two or three weeks. We'll travel. So we got in the car. We went to a variety of places. He showed me how to do it. We get back, and he says, okay, now you go do it. This was after like five days. And I said, Aren't, am I not going to get any more additional training? He says, you don't need it. You picked it up pretty quick. He gave me two credit cards, unlimited spending account. Yeah. Uh, of course, I had the car. And he basically says, uh, you're going to uh, have to wear some little more reasonable clothes than what you've been wearing playing trainer at uh, Floyd Central. I said, well, I understand that. I'll go shopping. He said, no, I want to take you shopping. So we get in the car. I don't know where a little shop this was down to Arlington Heights. And he proceeded to buy me about $600 worth of clothes. He said, this will get you started. <laughs> get you and started. I'm going, okay. <laughs> Little did I know he was right. It was just going to get me started. So from then on, he says, I want so many of these opened, and we're going to start in Indiana, and we will move out in circles. And he says, and then I don't care where they're opened up. I need about uh, 90 of these opened. And I said, Mom, you only salesman. He said, well, I'll help you a little bit, but yeah, you're the only salesman. I'm going, okay, okay, I'll, I'll see what I can do. So that process started. The stories uh, are abound of all the things that we did as we traveled the United States. So, so, so what would be, um, as you're trying to, what would be kind of your procedure when you would go in to, to, to open up a clinic? Would you, would you go find out like where, 
where we're going to put this clinic or i mean what was kind of what would what would your you know, job your job would be to to start up one of these clinics i never did a cold call i never had a cold call where i went into the city said we're going to open up two. didn't have to do that i had been on the professional education committee with uh bud miller and that it opened me up to literally hundreds of people yeah. that I would not normally know or a high school trainer wouldn't normally know. And then Hoove had a whole bunch of friends that he had been introducing me to. And in between some of that, I think we even had a GLADA meeting. So we, he, where he trained me was all these different people. Right. And he provided me with the resources to, to go out and do it. So I would go in and let's say uh, going to Phoenix. And if I went into Phoenix, I already knew that we were going to be attaching our wagon to the premier orthopedic group. Okay. And we already had contacts. We already had PTs we knew. We had athletic trainers in all the universities that we knew we could set up. So when we opened up in Phoenix, as an example, we had the largest facility in Phoenix. And the hospital was trying to open up one, but we were so quick. And the doctor's group was opening up a, a I think it was a four or five floor orthopedic uh, office with surgical center and a complete rehab unit up top. Okay. And then an outreach program. So when we went in, I actually had a piece of drafting paper, which was unusual because usually I use the cocktail napkin. And I said, <laughs> well, how much square footage do we have? And they go, how would you do it? And I said, well, we'll either put the uh, cubicles over here, front desk here, all of this is here. And they said, how are you going to use the outdoor track? I said, oh, we have an outdoor track. Well, this is how I do it. Doors here, and we do this. How long? It's an eighth of a mile. And, I mean, it was pretty slick. Before the hospital could even get their uh, legal stuff together, we had already opened. Wow. There was a 12-man and woman group that did the orthopedics, and I think we ended up with about a eight-person physical therapy staff and I don't know how many athletic trainers to do the outreach. Well, what happened then is that once I did that, then all of a sudden they would say, well, you need to go to Albuquerque. Well, people in Albuquerque, I knew real well because I sat on the professional education committee with L.F. Todine, who was infamous. Okay. I mean, he was infamous and was well-liked. So I would go talk to him. He said, well, you need to go talk to that doctor, that doctor, that doctor. So we ended up opening, uh, Hoover wanted a, a site in Santa Fe, because he wanted, in reason for he wanted to buy a condo there. Yeah. That's the only reason he wanted one there, getting reason to come in there. So I said, okay. So we, ended, we opened up one in Albuquerque, I believe. We had one or two in Santa Fe, and he always wanted uh, original artwork that would go into those regional offices. So he, he says, uh, go out there and uh, I'll meet you in Houston. So I, I'd already been there, and yeah. I'd gone back to Chicago. I'd actually I'd even gone into the Philadelphia because we were working with the Eagles doing some stuff. Yeah. And I get this call, and it says, you got to be in Houston on Thursday. Well, this is Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I call him, and I said, how am I, Sam Hill, am I going to get that done? He said, fly in to O'Hare. Your secretary will have a suitcase ready for you. And you switch documents and that, and then fly to Houston. I'd already, I had not been at home for in Chicago for about 10, 12 days. So I flew in, and uh, 
flew into Houston. He picked me up and he wanted to see the flowers, uh, some flower that would be covering uh, West Texas. I forget. Blue bonnets. Blue bonnets. Yes. And we drove and drove and zigzagged through West uh, Texas till we found the blue bonnets. So here I am going, I thought we were going to Santa Fe and Albuquerque and this. So we ended up uh, in, started out in Albuquerque. And then we ended up in Santa Fe. And he goes, we have two offices there. And we had a doctor. He had a real good doctor contact. So we, we opened up an office with him and another one. And he brought in uh, ex-student, uh, PT student, and they opened up the other one. And he goes, now for artwork. So we get in the, in the car, and we drive up into the mountains, and we end up in Taos, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I said, what are we doing here, Hoof? He says, we're going up and get, I found this Indian, and he is an artist. We're going to get some specialty stuff. Well, as you know, Hoof, Hoof had polio in the early years. He can't move, and we're, we're trying to walk up these rocks, and I said, quit trying to fall. He said, I'm all right, all right, I'm all right. <laughs> so we get up on this flat rock, and this Indian is up there. It had a little fire going. and had all this artwork. He had pottery and uh, almost like lithographs, but they were original art. And uh, we sat there, and who actually got cross, semi-cross-legged, and we were sitting there negotiating with this Indian and, and some woman, a Native American woman and another person, showing us all this artwork. And who finally said, well, take it all. How much? And the guy quoted him price, which was fairly significant. And who got out cash and paid him. And I'm going, okay, this is good. And it was substantial. Yeah. And he goes, uh, now, how do we consummate this deal? And the guy brings out a pipe, Indian pipe and fills it with peyote. And I'm going, what are we smoking here? And he goes, peyote, peyote. And he lights it and he takes a big puff and he starts passing it around. Well, Hoof takes a big deal, about chokes himself there. Hoof did not smoke. Yeah. You know, I smoked a cigar every now and then, so I had a little idea what yeah. it was gonna be, but I took it and it was harsh. And I'm going, oh my God. You know, so we pass that sucker around about four or five times. And I'm not feeling any pain, you know, and the Indian is just stoking away on this stuff. And it looked, I mean, you could just feel the haze coming down on us. And then that was consummated. Yeah. And I'm going, I can't believe we've been doing this. I said, cop shows up, we're in jail. You know, and so we finally got it done. We fill up his trunk in this back seat of that BMW full of artwork. And we had to go back and get more of it the next day, not up on the hill, but at yeah. this guy's studio. So we did. We had enough artwork to fill all of the offices in the Southwest. Wow. I mean, I think it was a ten grand purchase. Yeah. You know, minimum. Wow. So we did that, and I mean, I felt like somebody hit me in the head uh, after smoking that wacky <laughs> who, weed. Who, who, who drove back to the hotel? Who did? And that was not a pleasant deal. He was not a good driver at times, and he wanted to drive. He was in control, so, and that was very typical. Yeah. Uh, Dick, doing just crazy things like that. And then I would always be the one, if I opened an office, and I opened up probably over 80 of those offices, or I had access to help and do it, every Christmas we would then have a dinner, and every doctor's wife would get a piece of water, Waterford Crystal. Oh, wow. So he spent literally thousands upon thousands of yeah. dollars, and then the doctors got pretty significant bottle of wine 
Yeah. I mean, I'm not talking about a $20 bottle of wine. Yeah. I'm talking about a couple hundred We're not talking about Mad Dog 2020. That is correct. <laughs> so he he would say, we'd start in uh, right before Thanksgiving and say, it's time for our, our dinners. I said, okay. So he would send me to the furthest place because he did not want to have to go. Right. But he wanted to go to Phoenix. He says, I'll meet you in Phoenix. So here are... So he would drive to Phoenix. He would drive to Phoenix. Oh, yeah. He'd power drive. He'd do that in a day or a day and a half. He'd oh, drive all smokes. night. Get there, take a shower in his condo, and he'd be ready to go. So I was staying at the uh, Camelback Hotel, I think. Was that what it was in Phoenix? Yep, I think it was. So he picked me up. We'd go into this I mean, very, very exclusive restaurant, big-time restaurant. And we're sitting there having dinner. And he says, you sit at that end, I'll sit at this end. And then I started giving out the Waterford Crystal to the ladies and the bottle of wine to the doctors, which is kind of illegal now. But right, you know, yeah. we, well, you, could, about, uh, you, know. you could get away with it back then. And then we would proceed to have dinner. And this was not one of those uh, one or two course dinners. It's five or six course dinner. It's that type of restaurant, five-star restaurant yeah. type thing. And we would eat probably three, four, five hours. We would be there. Oh, wow. And then uh, I always got stuck with the bill. Hoove would look at me and just smile, and I knew what was coming. I might as well bend over because I knew it was coming. <laughs> and he would look at the waitress because he would always be the one. To, he'd look at it and said, he's paying. Give it to him. So they bring it to me, and I just lay this long strip out, and I'm going, "Oh my lord!" You know, it, it might be five thousand dollars, yeah, type of thing. And I'd go, "Okay," and I, of course, I had an unlimited expense account, so I gave him my credit card, and I paid that. Well, he then tells me, he says, "Well, you're going to be here for a while because you need to go here, here, and here. Use this as your base, and then I'll see you in ten days." Well, I'd already been on the road again. Yeah. You know, and all of a sudden I was gone like 20 straight days. Yeah. I said, I don't even have enough clothes. He says, sure you do. Go to the golf course and buy you some uh, clothes. Yeah. So <laughs> I had new clothes all over the United States. You know, I mean, it's pretty funny. So I said, okay, I'll go do it. So I was 10 days before I got there, a couple of days with him, and then seven to 10 days after the fact because I was going in and I had to get Christmas presents and bonuses. To all the staff. Yeah. So I did that, and then I'd go to the next site. Sometimes I would get to go back to Chicago, and then maybe go someplace else. But it was uh, pretty, and, and that was a typical all across the United States. Didn't matter if I we were in Laporte, Indiana, with John Coddington yeah. from Ball State. Yeah. John, John talks there. about that visit when uh, he, and the, I guess you guys were walking into the hospital and his his boss is like, what are these guys doing here? Yeah. <laughs> they, she knew what was going yeah, down. Yeah, she knew what was going <laughs> And we were open and we, and that's an interesting story just with John because we, who didn't think it would work? And I said, well, let's give John a, a shot because I think he's very well connected here. And he says, we get 30 a day, I'll be happy. After the first three months, we were seeing 90 people a day. Oh, wow. Unheard of. That was yeah. our, our largest production of PT services in the company, and we were setting it on fire, bigger than what we were doing in Phoenix. Yeah. So in Laporte, Indiana. In Laporte, Indiana, and he he said, "I'm not going to Laporte. You go down there, Laporte." I'm going. <laughs> yeah. So I go to Laporte. If I went in the winter time, I didn't know if I was going to get out of there in a yeah. day or five days because of the snowstorms. But I would all. John and I had a great relationship, and we were producing right and left. 
great numbers out of that. But Hoove had a system in his office that he could get on the computer and he could hit the computer and go, okay, let's see uh, what kind of procedures we're doing in Laporte. What kind of procedures are we doing in uh, Phoenix? And he said, we're not seeing any necks. Why are we seeing any necks? I said, I haven't seen the report. I haven't been here. He says, you need to get back out there and tell them we don't see, we're not seeing any necks. We won't be able to pay the rent. And yeah. I said, well, we can pay the rent. He says, you heard me. I said, okay. So I'd either get in the car and go to Laporte or fly out back to Phoenix and yeah. we'd sit with head doc or the business manager and I'd show them the report. Well, we're doing really well here and here and here. Things are going to get a little tight because we're not seeing any necks. So don't you have two guys that do nothing but necks? Well, yeah. I said, we're not seeing anything from them. And that lady in Phoenix would go, I'll take care of that. So 10 days later, you look at the report, we might have 25 necks. Right. I mean, it, it was a game, and we you could get away with it back then, but it didn't matter where you were. We, we had our thumb on all the production. So... Hoove was a hell of a businessman. And that's one of my questions is, is there's two questions I, I want to ask you, but one of the first one is where did Dick learn his business acumen? Where, what was it that made, you know, what, what did he learn along the way to, to, for him to go, Hey, this, this thing can make money. How can we do this to make money? Well, that whole PT business started in the bowels of Northwestern's uh, athletic training room. He had, a, at one time, he had every resident coming out of the orthopedic uh, residency coming through there to do a sports medicine residency week or two. Yeah. So he would see the patients. He would show them what they were doing. Then he all of a sudden, he started seeing patients after hours. Or during hours. Yeah. And, and all the residents kept coming out of there. Okay. So all of a sudden, uh, the residents would get out and he would open up shop with Dr. Doctor Jones and he would be maybe in uh, Michigan someplace and said, I want that same treatment. Because if, and back in those days, PT was pretty docile. It was in the hospitals. It was, right? Most of it was in the hospitals. It was yeah. not, Dick was one of the first ones to do outpatient physical therapy centers. Yeah. And they wanted the same type of therapy that was that the athletes were getting. So they would call Dick and were harassing him. We need to have this. Well, one of those guys ended up uh, right outside like Hinsdale or something like that, right outside Chicago. So he opened up an office in Hinsdale with a doctor partner. And then somebody else called. Well, they opened up another one. And then the doctor got cold feet. I can't, uh, I can't grub stake all this. Yeah. So I don't know who it was. I think it was probably somebody of uh, unusual nature that helped fund it. I mean, he had some unusual friends. Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. And uh, they were not always on the up and up, but they always had money. So I think that somebody said, okay, we'll, we'll grub stake you for these five. So the next thing he knows, he ended up with, I think we had 13 when I went to work for him. He had 13 across the United States. And he learned it. Not by any formal education. He learned it by hook and crook. And it was all geared toward physical therapy and athletic training. What uh, I think made him the businessman he was, he was very astute. Not everybody could work for him because he was mean as a snake. If he didn't like you, you knew it. 
I got along with him very well because I've known him since I was a freshman in college. Right. You know, so, I mean, he was harsh with me, but it wasn't like some of the rest of the people. And, and you knew you probably, it's nothing personal. It's just what he was trying to do. It's just business. Yeah. I got to make money. We're going to stay in business. We gotta, and that's how you ever get your paycheck. We make money. So I would uh, say, okay. So his formal education was kind of like my formal education. Here's a week's worth. Get your ass out there and do it. You yeah. know, and yeah. uh, the thing he taught me, and I, actually a couple people taught me is, uh, J.D. was a great person for this. And I put those two things together, and I think it served me well. Dick always said, you treat the people as not only customers, but as friends. That way you can say things to them that you normally couldn't say just to a customer. And you can be harsh, and they know it's not personal, and you treat them well. So you can take a doctor out and spend $500 on them. Nobody else is going to be doing that. Right. First of all, they don't need it. But you're being nice to them, and you're taking care of their kids. You know the kids. You know the dog's name. Dick, Dickerson was the same way. didn't matter whether you were a doctor or a coach. It would be, well, okay, Troy, how's your three kids doing? How's the rooster doing? Yeah. Oh, how's your wife, Billy, Bob? And, you know, I mean, he, she would, he and she would just be along great. So when he went in, sometimes he didn't even go in to see the trainer right away. He stopped by the house. Right. You know, so I started picking up little things like that, and I'm going, well, it's just, I don't know any different. This is the only way I know how to do business is to network, and if you network appropriately, you're going to, refine, you're going to run into the right people. Right. And I, I've, come to, I've come to realize that, uh, sure, there are parts of business you need to have formal education. We always had outstanding... Uh, uh, financial people always had people with a lot of degrees in that marketing we we didn't need marketing because it, it wasn't a traditional marketing program right you know this was a completely different animal than trying to plot you know and looking at target markets and how many you think you could sell wasn't like that this was all networking you network through the system and so we hired the best that we could afford to do those things that we needed. And then we hired people who knew people that we could use. We hired other people. There was people like Tony Garofalo that worked for the uh, Cubs. Yeah. He worked with us in the offseason. Well, Tony and I became good friends. And all I did was go to Tony and say, who do, we know, who do you know in baseball might be able to open one of these up? So he'd give me a list. We'd get on a plane. We'd go visit him. Right. You know, so he's getting paid by Hoof to help market yeah, and we did the same thing with three or four other people uh, like that, and that's how all that. That's how we ended up with. I think when I left and he sold out, I think we had like almost a hundred, either one hundred thirteen or one hundred eighteen sites. That's a lot of sites. Yeah, and that, and that was my question too, because obviously this was so. This was probably what early to mid eighties. Is that around that? This time? had been uh, from eighty four to ninety. Yeah. So, I mean, who was, I mean, this is kind of a, this is a definitely a new thing, but who would have been your competition? Really didn't have any. That's what I was going to, that's what I thought. Yeah. Not nationally. We, there were regional partners. Right. Yeah. Uh, there was a guy in uh, uh, Philadelphia that was really well connected there. Yeah. And he was good and he had multiple sites and I spent six months there trying to, 
get a hook into it. Yeah. And I, hell, I was working with uh, Brayman, the owner, and Otho. Yeah. I mean, I've seen them every day trying to plot a strategy, making phone calls. I said in Brayman's office, he'd make phone calls, I'd make phone calls. We could not break in because that guy was doing the same thing we were doing, just in a, a smaller scope. Yeah. And he was making a lot of money. I mean, he was flying around Philadelphia in a daggone helicopter, and I was trying to, you know, <laughs> take a cab someplace, you know. Exactly, and, I'm going, yeah. well, and I would go back to Hoover and say, you know, Hoover, I don't know if we're going to be able to break in, and here's why. So finally, we came to the conclusion that was not going to be an appropriate site. So we had other sites, so we right. picked off others. But what that did for me is I learned what not to do as well as what to do. Yeah. And uh, we always treated, even if we couldn't open something up, I always treated people as well as I could. And uh, they knew I wasn't going to stab them in the back. I'd be right. up front with them. I'd be transparent. And they would always make money. And they did. It almost sounds like a mafioso statement, but I'll make you money. Well, we did. We yeah. made, and for athlete trainers, uh, I mean, we, I don't think he'd mind me telling this, uh, but John Schrader, who was at Bloomington, mm -hmm. he wanted a site there. So we did that. Well, he wasn't making a lot of money, but you know, when you're a college athletic trainer and you can make an extra $24,000, that's a lot of money with what your other salary is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and he wouldn't go in. We hired somebody, but he'd go in occasionally because right. everybody wanted to see John, the trainer, for the soccer team. Right. So occasionally, after hours, he'd come in and see six or eight people. Right. You know, and... We did that all over the United States. We did it with uh, in Colorado Springs with somebody who was connected with uh, the Olympic teams. Uh, I mean, we were all over the place. Uh, we opened up just in the state of Indiana. I think I opened up six or six or seven sites. Yeah, and all of them. I mean, none of them were going to be the big, huge, uh, corporate type of setting. Right. But all of them were small and very functional and. We always made enough money. I, when I walked into a site, I knew what the break-even was. So I would, I would look at that, uh, those doctors or I would look at the PT or the ATC and say, guys, for us to break even, we need to see 12 a day. And without saying any more, they knew what they had to develop. And right. that was usually over six months. We, you know, we, had, we had plenty of time to do it, but I need to have 12 a day. Most time we superseded that. You know, we always had 14 or 18, 20. So the, those PTs that when you would hire into those clinics, did they already have relationships with the physicians and stuff? Or did you have to kind of work on that? Well, we worked on that. Some of them did. And yeah. then some of them didn't. You know, just kind of depending on the situation. And how the bigger the site would get, the, the more difficult it was to find people locally that you could fit into it. So you might have to bring somebody from uh, Denver into Colorado Springs or into Phoenix. And a lot of them wanted to move around. Some from Chicago, we had a good base in Chicago. A lot of, some of them went, hey, I want to go to, I want to live in Phoenix for a while, or I want to live in Santa Fe. So almost like a traveling nurse type situation. Yeah, and, and they would, sometimes they'd never leave. Yeah. They would just stay there. So it was a uh, pretty interesting, uh, I mean, I learned a lot. I still use a lot of it today, not, necess not necessarily in sites, but I was just thinking about, okay, how do I treat this person? Who do I network? Because at my age now, a lot of people are retiring. But there's always somebody that knows somebody right. that knows somebody that I can get in the door. And we can have a chat. Yeah. And a lot of times, it, 
frankly, most PTs and athlete trainers, they don't get treated very nice. Yeah. You know, most people are, are they're, they're always the ones who are doing all the work and not getting any of the accolades. So when I would go in, I'd say, well, let's go to lunch. Well, I might drop a hundred bucks on lunch and say, yeah, probably the first time that's been done for them in a year. Yeah. And I would do it on a regular basis. And I wasn't doing it to impress them. I was doing it to say, hey, I, we appreciate what you're doing and you can help us or you're working your tail off and I want you to know that we appreciate it. Yeah. You know, type of thing. And that's kind of, that's, that's the way I did it. And it seemed to work well for me. And I, I credit Who for teaching me that. And I really credit uh, JD for teaching me the, the fine tuning of that because he yeah. was a master at that. Yeah. I mean, I've never known a man that would walk into a place and say, Hello, Bill. How's your wife, Mary? How's those four kids? Hey, that one just had a birthday. I mean, I'd be going, how do you know this? <laughs> you know, I mean, he kept that in his head. Yeah. And he, and he was so respectful of everybody. And he had that damn grin on him. Yeah. You know, and you couldn't get <laughs> mad at him. Yeah. And so between those two guys, I learned an awful lot. Yeah. It, was, it would be... I will tell you right now, I, I am not a big time corporate entity type of guy. I would never survive because it was so rigid. I didn't feel like I could shuck and jive, you know, yeah. and do my job. Yeah, it it it, so, it sounds like I mean, if if you looked at 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 healthcare today, comparative to healthcare back then, even at the hospital level, it still was on who you knew. Who you can connect with? Mm-hmm. Where can you go in and, and have relationships with and stuff? Yeah. And and you building on those relationships with that. It also sounds a little bit like the Wild West. Yeah. <laughs> it, in many ways, it was. I will tell you that I think that we gave some of the finest care that could be received anywhere. We always prided ourselves on giving great care. Yeah. And top-notch care and having top-notch equipment. And I, and I say that because at one time... Well, Ron, Ron talked about that in his podcast. Oh, really? O'Neill talked about it in his podcast because he said he got hired by Otho because he had done all that tr- stuff with, with the, um, the isokinetic machine stuff yeah. that Hoove had talked about at North, that Hoove had at Northwestern. Yeah. Yeah. We, at one, and this is when we were in the business going harsh. We had the largest number in the world of any company of Kincoms. Yeah. And we had a direct relationship with a guy by the name of Hank Kinese. And Hank was the ma- he was another master salesman. I mean he was really good. And they just let him, it's like a racehorse, get out there and run. Well <laughs> Hank would come in to Chicago and take take Hoove and I and a couple others to dinner. We'd sit there and plot it. He'd go, how many are you gonna need? Who would go, well, we got this one, we're going to need seven of them. Well, seven of them, I mean, those were, at that time, was $50,000 a clip. Yeah. You know, and I'm going, oh, Lordy, I guess I better get my buns together <laughs> and get out there. Uh, but and that, that was not the only machine. We also, uh, you know, had orthotrons and a whole variety of other machines, and some of which I didn't even know how to work, but, I mean, I, I could sell the concepts. So it was, our, our quality of care was outstanding. He was, uh, he was an animal about it. If he thought we were not doing the right thing by a patient, he horned in on it. I've seen him fire people. 
Yeah. Because they weren't doing the right thing or they were skipping a step. Yeah. And uh, and I also knew that if he was on a road trip and was going to be gone for two weeks, three or four people were going to get fired. And I would get the phone as he left. I'd get a phone call. Says, "Okay, I fired him. You come back in and hire him." And I'd go, "What?" <laughs> he says, yeah, I've talked talked to Patty about it. Who is our HR lady? She'll take care of it. She'll tell you what to do. I'd go in talk to Patty. Next thing I know, I'd be on a plane, getting in a rental car, and I'd hop, skip, and jump places he'd already been. Yeah. And the people wouldn't even leave. They knew they got fired, but they weren't going to leave because they go be fired. Yeah. And I, always with a raise. I always gave him a raise. I yeah. said, you know. I, I know he's a pain in the butt. That, that I always make light of it. What it was was that you think that's his way of kind of like, all right, you're going off on your own. I want you to do it this way. Do you understand now? This is what I want done. Yeah, you need to you need to do it. And a lot of them, a couple of them were his friends. That's what was funny. And I'd yeah. come back in and go, well, I got fired. I said, no, you didn't. You're rehired. And by the way, here's a twenty four hundred dollar raise and a thousand dollar bonus. Just get the job done. Listen to what he said and get on with it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so a lot of times they wanted to be fired. So they get yeah, away. Really knew what was coming. Yeah. Am I getting fired? No, you're not getting fired. Oh, dang on it! I wanted to raise. Well, you're not getting. So I mean, we it was a very unique time, and the rules were uh, a little more loose. And yeah. You didn't have some of those blue sky laws and all. I mean, it was we were spending money. They and when we sold to Baxter, when he did sell to there, I knew it wasn't going to last long for him and me either, because they started putting in more rigid rules, which right. they should have. They owned it; it was right. a big corporation. But I also knew it wasn't going to work, and it was going to cause trouble. Yeah. So after Hoove left, and then about six months, eight months later, I cleaned up a bunch of stuff and I left. They tried to keep me, and I just. I just didn't think I could handle the corporate yeah. BS, you know, the lifestyle. So, so in with the PT, I mean, um, was were you trying to and were you trying to balance out private insurance billing versus Medicare, Medicaid? How did that work back then with those private? Well, PT probably companies? a lot of we always took uh, somebody's insurance, right. Okay, and we never really charged more than that. So if, but we were able to bundle it. So if you came in and you knew that uh, you were going to do an exercise, you were going to get fifty bucks for it, then we knew we needed to do. Well, you need to warm up. So here's a hydroculator. We got twenty five dollars for that. We got fifty dollars for that. Then you got to do a little more of this. That's another twenty five. So what we looked at was the number of patients and the charge per visit. So we knew exactly how much that patient was being charged and what they were getting and were they improving. Yeah. So we never pushed it, but we always made sure you had to bundle it to make any money. Right. So if, so if we had, we, let's say we were doing 20 patients today, maybe we were getting 200 bucks a visit. Yeah. It was all just strictly insurance. And that's the way the insurance played it. Okay. So it wasn't that we're cheating it, we were just playing by their rules. Right. And then, uh, same thing with Medicare. I mean, and I will tell you, who was always good about if somebody didn't have the money and they needed to be treated, they got treated. Yeah. You know, forget the money, take care of them. And uh, I think the other thing that uh, I learned, it took me a while because he, I, would, 
I was never always allowed into the inner sanctum sometimes. Yeah. But as I spent more time there, I got involved in all of it. And uh, he was very good with charitable causes. And he never, ever, ever wanted his name used. It was all anonymous. So things like uh, for years at the NATA national meeting, they had a student trainer banquet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Breakfast. Yeah. Uh, I delivered that check. For a whole bunch of years, even after I left, uh, I, I would deliver that check to uh, the person in charge of that. Yeah, we paid for that. Wow! I think the smallest check that uh, we ever gave him was five grand. <laughs> so, and that was because of whose uh, relationship with Otho. They were really close friends. Right. Yeah. And of course, I then got to know Otho really well, not only through Who, but Ronnie O'Neill as right. well. You know, because Ronnie was. Ball Stater, plus he was my fraternity big brother. So we yeah. were all tight. And I got into places I should not have got into because of being in that tight area. Yeah. Uh, but Hoover was very good about that. He did things like uh, uh, somebody, some kid that has, let's say, terminal cancer or some really uh, crazy disease that probably wasn't going to make it, and his wish was to go to the Cubs game. Well, we already had a connection. We'd say, Tony, we need to be right behind home plate. We need a baseball and a cap and a couple of ball players come up and do this. And I would go pick them up. They, sometimes we'd fly them in from some faraway city, bring them in. I'd pick them up at the airport by limo. I would, who would never even go? I would take them to the game, make sure there was hot dogs and Cokes and all that. And uh, Tony would always be good about making sure the kid got a baseball. He got a hat. Some player would come up. You know, and say hello and talk to him, give him an autograph. Yeah. And then after the game, uh, if if it was appropriate, we went into the training room in the dressing room. Wow. Sometimes we could do that, sometimes right. we couldn't. Yeah. But then after that, we they would stay at probably one of the nicer hotels. And, and usually it would be a, a Marriott downtown or the Intercontinental. Wow. Put them up. I would stay there with them and then make sure they had dinner. Very, if it was... Uh, appropriate to have because we did a lot of day games so we had dinner and then the next morning we would have uh breakfast maybe take them to one of the museums yeah. and then that afternoon late they'd catch a flight back never once i did that at least six times never once did hoover ever make an appearance and no one ever knew who paid for it wow. except me <laughs> uh yeah another one was uh I forget the name of it. It was uh, the Red. Oh Lord! It was it was a Sioux Nation charitable foundation, and the coach George Allen, and Otho and Hoove and three other ball players they funded that. Okay. So they would raise money. Yeah. And then they would they had a big dinner where they made more money in an right. auction, uh, and then that money would be taken and given to the Sioux Nation, for helping take care of kids. Right. Never once did any of those guys' names really appear. I don't know. And I went to the dinner, I think, at least twice. Who would never go? He didn't want anybody to know he did it. But it was nothing to, for him to spend five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 on. Yeah. So there were certain things he loved to do. Yeah. But never once did he want his name appear. And now... I appear a lot, you know, they, and I would tell them up front, I'm only the messenger. I'm not the giver of the, of the goods. Here. Right. So, you know, you, 
it, but it was, you know, it was very touching. Everybody thought he was so harsh and mean and all that. Right. He was a big wuss, you know, yeah. when it come to, to kids. And, uh, I mean, he, he did all kind of crazy things. I mean, he would uh, go downtown uh, Chicago, Little League, and, and he would sponsor a team that had no money. Yeah. You know, it had the best uniforms, ball, balls and bats. And, and he, he would drive by. I mean, I, I was uncomfortable because, well, Lord, in some cases, we're going down by Green Green. Yeah, just say, you know? yeah, yeah. But you, he would go by and check out his team, and then we'd drive away. Yeah. So, I mean, it, a lot of little things like that that he was extremely uh, good at and quiet. And that's, that's, I think it's, Otho did the very same thing. Yeah. A lot of people can be harsh with him. But nobody knew that he was funding some of these other things with a lot of these coaches. Yeah. So my appreciation and my perception of those guys are completely different than right. most other people. Uh, and I think that has served me well yeah. uh, to know that. And as I hear people talk about others, you know, you know, Otho got a bad rap a lot because he would say things and he could be very direct Yes. and took no prisoners. But, you know, in the end, I mean, and I understood that because you had to do some of that stuff just to get the job done. A lot, a, lot of, a lot of athletic trainers didn't understand that. Yeah. And, but they also didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. Right. So I was, my perception of people like that was completely different than somebody that only sat in meetings with them. Yeah. So I would always look at them and say, don't, you shouldn't open your mouth because you don't really know what you're talking about. And then they'd think I was trying to protect him and I was just, they just didn't know. Right. You yeah. know, and I don't like that. Uh, you know, in many ways, uh, JD was similar. It wasn't necessarily the big things that he did. Yeah. But he would do things like uh, if you were sitting over in uh, uh, the western side of Illinois and you were a high school trainer and you were a rookie and you had a player that was hurt and the big game was that night or the next day and you needed something, JD would get in the car in Muncie. And he would drive straight through to make sure he was either at the practice or right before the game and to fit whatever piece of equipment they would need. Yeah. And then he would make sure that he talked to that coach. And I mean, I went with him one time. I, don't even, I can't even remember what the little school was, but the kid was just scared to death because this right. was the star athlete. I think he broke his nose or chipped a tooth or something. So he had to put a face mask on him. Right. So JD comes over. He shows the kid how to do it. The coach had to walk in. To the little training room, and the kids fitting it. And JD says, "That's perfect. You know, let me help you a little bit." And all that. And the coach turned around, and uh, coach is going, "What are we doing here?" And JD says, "He's going to get to play because of him." And we're, Whoa! You know, I'm going, oh, "Damn, JD, you did all the work. <laughs> we, we just drove four and a half hours, yeah. and the, and the kid was just like a rooster. You go, oh my god!" And it, it, and I don't say it was going to save the kid's job, but it gave him more credibility right. to get the job done. Right. And JD and, did that more than once. Yeah. And you don't know where that leads to down the line. I mean, that 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 helps that that young athletic trainer. You know, if they're having a little bit of humility, they're they're kind of knowing where that's coming from. But at the same time, it gives them a boost and, like you said, credibility with coaches that could yeah. build that on. With that, and, 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 and I was fortunate because when even when I was at Floyd Central, 
I'd already been in you know, college and it was doing the Seahawks thing during the summers and yeah. all that. So I, I didn't need any more confidence. I knew I'd do it. Yeah. But the bottom line was, is that JD would come in and would sit there and he'd spend the night with me. He'd hang out with me, go to games with me because he'd get away with it, you know, because right. he's a snowball. We're going to be okay here. You know, right. Carol would let him do that. Somebody else, he might not, might not allow it. But, right. Uh, we spent, he spent a lot of time down with me. And all the coaches got to know him. So when he showed up, he was talking about stuff. He, They'd say, what would you do? So exactly what he's doing. Yeah. And I said, he's doing the right thing. He knows more about this than I do. You know, and it, it gave me a level of uh, credibility, mm-hmm. additional boost. And I you know, I don't even know if I needed it, but it did, I loved it. Right. And I loved for him to show up yeah. uh, to do that. And in the early days, who did that occasionally? Yeah. You know, uh, he would show up in this big vehicle, and everybody would go, my God, who in the world is this? Come marching in. What's going on in here? <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it, I, I, feel, I always felt I was very fortunate because I, I was around Bud Miller, which is a whole different story, Hoover, Sendry, and J.D. Yeah. And... Those four people all had an impact, some more nationally than others, some more regionally than others, and some more in a state. Right. But all of them had an impact. And I always felt that I was lucky because I was able to pick the pieces. Yeah, you were. Uh, together. Yeah. And not everybody got a chance to do that. And uh, with somebody like Hoover, I, I got to really get in with Pinky Newell and who he was really good friends with. Uh, Otho and a whole bunch of those people, you know, Bud. I mean, he sat on, I sat on in a professional education, special, it was a special committee for the professional education committee that no high school trainer should have been on. Yeah. I was on that. And when I was at Washington, I, I would redline after uh, Bud would yellow line every curriculum document in those early years that were trying to get certified yeah. as a curriculum. Must have gone through 50 or 60 of them. I read every one of them and yeah. marked them all. I knew their curriculums better than they did because <laughs> my desk was right next to his. Yeah. And he had stacks of these things. And he'd go, all right, I'm down with these five. You look at them. So I'd sit there and I'd, in between treatments, I'd read all yeah. of them and mark things. He'd go, well, I didn't catch that. That was a good catch. Okay. And, and uh, it was... It, I mean, I got to know people that I really should never have got to know because I was afforded an opportunity that a lot of people didn't get. Yeah. And that's the reason I always feel like people need to be involved. Right. Because you're more involved, the more you realize all that's going on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, and I think that's, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of things that go behind the scenes, even, even now, that things that we ask questions about. Um, you know, the biggest thing right now that's happening in athletic training is this whole change in continuing education and stuff. And there's a lot of things that, you know, people are asking questions about that they don't have answers for. Yet, I think that their answers being discussed, they just want to make sure they're going to roll it out the right way. And and you got to have a little bit of faith that that's what's going to happen. A little bit. I mean, I'm just now getting back out on the road. So I'm just starting to hear things. And I don't know that I particularly like the direction it's going yeah. Uh, I know that uh, Pinky, Otho, Bud, Hoof, JD, and a whole array of friends underneath that who have left the profession because they don't like the direction it's going. Yeah. 
And um, after coming back from Philadelphia and, and attending that meeting, where in the past we might have 12,000 people attending a meeting, you had four, and probably 60% uh, of them were educators who can make no decisions. Yeah. You know, they don't buy the equipment for the biggest portion of that, and they're making decisions on how things are being done on the field and in the trenches, and they've never been in there. Yeah. And that, that's my biggest brief, is not, because, not that they're making decisions, but if you're going to get in there, have the experience of being in there yourself, and then you can do whatever you want. Right. I mean, and, and, and I think you brought up just what you just talked about. You know, you were in the, you were in reviewing those curriculums. It isn't like, it isn't like you've never done that before and now making comments about, you know, the educational system, what you see now. You have every, you're, you're absolutely every bit of legitimate uh, credibility wise because you saw the original curriculum. You saw what that was going to take to, to have and to do that. And that's why in talking, you know, even talking to Sindri, I mean, Sindri was in there trying to get that major done. The very same thing. And, right. and, 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 and so if he wants to comment on where he thinks the direction of the education programs are going, he's got every right to say that too, yeah, because exactly. he, he knows exactly where that's coming from. And, mm -hmm. and like you just said, you're still doing a, you were still doing a job. You were mm -hmm. still out there doing that stuff. And I don't think the intent that the, in the direction it's going now was never the intent of Pinky, Lindsey McLean, yeah. Bud Miller, Otho. It was never really supposed to be like that. But if somehow or other, it started turning and they lost control of it. And I think what I'm seeing, and I mean, I'm not in the trenches, so I, you know, I've, do I, do I know enough to be dangerous? Probably. What scares me is somebody's going to get killed. And if they get killed, then we're in trouble. Because then they, they're going to come back and say, well, they weren't well trained because they never had those experiences. Yeah. And that's what scares me. And I've been on the field or watching games with people, and I see it. Yeah, there's there definitely is a, um, a, a, a clinical... And, I, and I've said this when we talk about these in these podcasts. And, and to me, again, the now we're getting to the point where those athletic trainers that came through the, the new guidelines of those early from the 2000s on, you know, now are getting our clinical instructors for these new entry-level master's students. They're not getting, in my opinion, the level of clinical experiences that they have. They can call it immersive or whatever just fancy terminology there. yeah it's not the same amount of time and in and, yeah. and intensity in doing that and um i i, I remember i said something to um uh, i can't remember it, it was if basically what i said to somebody and i can't remember who it was but you know you guys are out there trying to reinvent the wheel on um medical education um But medical education has been around for years mm -hmm. and, and done these things and, and, and got this to go. And, and um, I think that's the thing is that um, I don't think we need to reinvent that. There's some great ideas that we can take from that anyway. Well, so I, I think we're right. Here's a challenge. All of a sudden we've got uh, people dictating some of this stuff. And requiring kids to take an extra year of education. And it's not in, 
you can't match up the amount of money they're going to make versus all this education. Now, should they have the education? Sure. But until everything starts catching up a little bit and schools realize they got to pay a reasonable mm -hmm. price for the level of education, and a lot of them don't. They just don't do it. And that's where you start getting in trouble. I mean, you, you go to med school. I've got a nephew going there right now. He's already had, this is his third year of different types of experiences hands-on. He's now in his residency right. in GI. So all of a sudden, he has got to be there. He's making the decisions. Right. Now, he's got somebody overseeing him. But that's not, I don't see us overseeing anybody. Yeah. You know, if, let's do the, let's give this over here on that dummy. Yeah. Well, the dummy's not going to holler at you if you make a mistake or if you break a leg or you know, yeah. kill him. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, yeah. No, you're exactly right. I mean, I, and I know I'm going to upset people by saying some of that, but I believe in the practicality of hands-on. Right. Now, do they need to have all the clinical stuff and the book learning? Yes, but it's got to come out on the end where they're actually able to take care of somebody and right. not kill them. Right. So I'm sorry about that. No, you're good. I want to thank Glenn for coming on the podcast again. I think the story of physical therapy services is, is very intriguing about basically how two guys were, were out there uh, just opening up clinics and because of relationships that they had formed in their athletic training days. Uh, it really goes to show you that, that, that networking is so important to what you're trying to do, especially business-wise. Um, it was also great to hear some stories about how charitable Dick was um, and then to have a little bit of a conversation at the end of the direction that we feel like is going in, uh, for athletic training education, which is always up for a hot debate anyway. So again, thanks to Glenn for coming on and we hope you enjoyed this podcast. So make sure that you give us a shout out on offtheroll at gmail.com. Um, you can also reply to my Facebook page. Give us a follow. I keep forgetting to ask people to do that, to follow us and uh, subscribe to our podcast. Um, we'll be working hard here. I've, I've got a new job where I have a lot of time in the morning now to to uh, bring on some guests and, and uh, really expand this out a little bit. So thanks for listening and take care.